When I was a kid, if ever we had the opportunity to go out to eat, my sister and I would beg to go to Poncho's Mexican Buffet. Because the way Poncho's worked, you'd go through the line with your tray the first time, and they would serve you whatever you asked for. But then when you sat down at your table, there was a little flag in the middle of the table. And if you raised the flag, somebody would come to your table and ask you what you wanted, and then they'd bring it to you. It was amazing. All you wanted. You raised the flag, taquitos. Raise the flag, sopapillas. Right? I have no idea how a place like that could have ever gone out of business. <laughs> Health code violations, I'm sure. Um, you, you know in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only one miracle that Jesus performed that all four Gospels tell us about, that all four record for us. Apart from the resurrection, one miracle that all four Gospels tell us, it's the time that Jesus fed the 5,000, when Jesus fed the multitude. And it's a very famous story, and rightly so. We're going to see that story today in John chapter 6, and we're also going to borrow a little bit from some of the other Gospel accounts, because each one, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all give us a little bit of information that John doesn't, and then vice versa. But y'all, this miracle in John 6 comes at what was probably the height of Jesus' popularity. The crowds had gotten so large that they were really unmanageable. And today, what we see is an overwhelming crowd of people, thousands upon thousands, who have left their homes, their towns to follow Jesus out into a, a, a wilderness place, out into a fairly deserted area. And right there where the crowds are gathered by the sea, uh, the flag is raised. All of these people are here, but they've got nothing to eat. What's going to be done? How can these people survive? How can they be in the presence of Jesus when such a fundamental thing is is missing, is being withheld from them. Well, let's see how the, the story unfolds. It's in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After these things, John tells us, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered Jesus, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little so stop here and, and let's kind of gather uh, together on what's happening. There's a, there's a massive crowd is following Jesus, and John tells us why. They've witnessed his healings. They're watching his miracles take place, and so they are enthralled with Jesus, and they want to be around him. They want to see what he's going to do and what he's all about. But they followed him across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a fairly deserted area, Away from their homes, their crops, their businesses, they've run out of food. Whatever rations they brought with them to begin with, they're gone. Now they've got nothing and, uh, to eat. And so Jesus looks over this great crowd, and he says to Philip, Philip lived in Bethsaida, which was nearby. 
which perhaps explains the question. He says to Philip, the local, where can we buy bread for all these people? Philip says 200 denarii wouldn't be enough for everyone to have just one bite of bread. Y'all, 200 denarii, that's eight months of wages for the common worker in those days. If that gives a sense of scope of how much bread, how much money we're talking about, far more than anybody possessed. But Jesus, John says, was actually testing Philip here. Y'all, Jesus was always pushing the disciples to see through the eyes of faith. So often Jesus would ask questions, knowing the answer, knowing the right thing to do or the right thing to say, but he's doing it to push his disciples into seeing the world differently, into functioning differently, not just in a naturalistic way, as Philip is doing here. Jesus already knew what he was intending to do, but he's trying to push. He's trying to push for his own good. Now, there's a detail we actually passed over, or it's easy to pass over. If you don't mind going back and looking at verse 4, verse 4 is easy to miss. John says the Passover was near. The Jewish feast, the great feast of the Jews. This is when the people of Israel celebrated their rescue from slavery to Egypt. Uh, in the Exodus, if you read through the book of Exodus, it tells this story. This was the most precious story for the Israelites. And it's, it's honestly, it's the story that's referred to most often in the Bible when speaking of Israel. This is their number one event where God judged Pharaoh and Egypt God parted the Red Sea, and Moses led the people out of bondage and into freedom. So at the Passover, more than any other time of year, this was the Israelites' reminder that they are God's people, that God saves and God provides. This is an important detail. We're going to see why in a little bit. So just hold on to that, okay? But look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Uh, Y'all, whenever I picture this image in my mind, you know, these big loaves of bread, the kind you get at Kroger, you know, for $1.99, a barley loaf, think about it more like a, a granola bar. Barley loaves were compact and dense and squished down. They were, this is the kind of bread that the poorer class would eat, not the big, steaming, beautiful loaves of bread that we might picture. It's more like a granola bar. And the fish, more than likely, were very small fish, kind of like sardines. Their purpose was not so much the, the filling, but it was the salty flavor they gave to the meal. There wasn't a whole lot to it between these barley loaves and these fish, especially when we consider the size of the crowd. And see, that's what Andrew says. What is this little meal for so many people? As, as the men were counted, there were 5,000. Y'all, that doesn't include women and children. And so the estimates that most commentators give us is that there are 10 to 20,000 people in this crowd with nothing to eat. It's shaping up to be the worst church potluck in history, okay? Nobody brought a casserole, no banana pudding. There's nothing, right? And so that's going to change, of course. Jesus knows what he's about to do. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, 
he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. Jesus gives thanks and begins to distribute the bread and the fish to the people. Now, in the other Gospels, we're given some information here that Jesus actually uh, included the disciples in on this miracle. Jesus distributed to them, and then the disciples then took and set the food before the people. But y'all, here's the point. Jesus takes a handful of food. I've heard another pastor call it a Hebrew happy meal. He takes this small meal, and with it he feeds 10,000 plus as much as they wanted. This poor child's sack lunch becomes a lavish feast for the multitude. This is a clear and unmistakable miracle. And then we see what happens next in verse 12. When they were filled, when everyone had had their fill, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So everybody, after they've eaten all they wanted, Jesus commands the leftovers to be gathered up into 12 baskets. Uh, More than likely, there's a symbol in all of that. Um, For the better part of 15, 1600 years, Christian commentators have pointed this out, that the 12 baskets probably represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And see, this is a way, in that case, for Jesus to send a message that he himself is God's provision for the nation. God who saves his people in the Exodus, the people who are holding on to the hope and promise that God will one day save them again in a greater and more significant, more eternal way, And Jesus is communicating something to them here. The 12 baskets of leftover bread, the overabundance of His grace. Here it is. Uh, This becomes even more clear later on. We'll begin to see it next week when Jesus refers to Himself as the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will never hunger. And so, y'all, this goes back to something I try to say Really, every time we see a miracle performed by Jesus, Jesus' miracles, John calls them signs, pointers. They are pointing to something greater than the miracle itself. They are signs that point people to Jesus' identity as the Son of God and Jesus' purpose in bringing salvation to the world. So this, this can't simply be about feeding hungry people because Lord knows they're going to be hungry again tomorrow. This is about the grace and the power of Jesus to give life, not just sustenance to the body temporarily, but salvation for the soul eternally. And so I I want us to think for ourselves now, right where we are, how this miracle connects to us, how it paints a a bigger picture uh, for us. Uh, There's a a detail that Mark gives us in his gospel that John does not when he tells this same story, and I think it's very helpful. It gives us an insight into the heart of Jesus here. This is from Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Mark says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Y'all, so at one level, this is a story about hungry people who lack food. 
But it shouldn't be difficult for us to see below the surface, to see the greater reality, that these people are lost, and they are beyond their resources. Jesus didn't feel compassion because he knew they were physically hungry. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Even the disciples in this moment, they are beyond their resources. They don't know what to do. They can't take care of these people. How are we, what are we supposed to do, Jesus? They don't know. And so what does Jesus say? Have them sit down. It's not a buffet line. And I might be reading too much into it. Have them sit down. There's no work involved in this miracle for them. All the work is done by someone else. Jesus Christ, in his grace and his power, provides to the full. And y'all, that's how salvation works. This is how our salvation works. All that you and I can bring to Jesus is emptiness and lack. We are beyond our own resources. We have nothing within ourselves that we can save ourselves. And y'all, that's how God has designed it. That's intentional. That's what God wants from us, is not to come to Him full of ourselves and all of our goodness and our religion and, and, and all the reasons why God should accept me and let me in. There are no such reasons. We come to Him only one way. It's with empty hands. It's with an empty and needy soul. And God set it up that way because in salvation, Jesus Christ fills those who are empty. He saves those who are lost. Not by any good thing we do. Not by any work we perform. But simply by receiving what Christ has done for us. In His compassion... In his love, he lays down his own life in our place so that by faith in him, we may be filled, that we may have life in his name, life with God forever. We come empty, we leave full. That's how it works. Now, Jesus has just performed this miracle a pretty, in my mind at least, a pretty clear picture of a greater reality. What are the people going to do? All these people, they're following him to begin with. They've just received, not just witnessed a miracle, but they've received it. They've been filled by his grace. What are the people going to do? We might expect them to respond to Jesus and trust him as their savior. But here's the twist. So often there's a twist. And this is a big one. Look with me at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, at the beginning, remember John gave us that little detail, seemingly a small detail, the Passover was at hand, right? And I told you that was important. Well, we begin to see now why I think it's an important detail. Y'all, the Passover is the most important time of the year for the Jewish people. It's their sense of identity as God's chosen nation. The, the mighty Egyptians were judged and defeated and the fledgling Israelites were saved. Why? Because they were the people of God's gracious choice. And so now the Passover is a time where they reflect on the wonder and the grace of God to save them. 
and on the awesomeness of God's man, Moses, to lead them. It was Moses who led them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And it was under Moses' leadership that they ate the manna in the wilderness and experienced the wonders of God, right? Well, what just happened? Jesus has just multiplied bread for the people in the wilderness. Jesus has just fed the people miraculously in a deserted place. And the wheels are turning in the people's minds. They know what's happening, or at least they think they know. This is Deuteronomy 18. This is what Moses promised us. Y'all, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is him. See, that's what the people are. They're just sure of it now. Jesus is this prophet. He's the new Moses. If Moses fed us the manna in the wilderness, now Jesus has fed us the bread in the wilderness. And surely if Moses led Israel out of Egypt and out of the bondage of slavery, then this man Jesus is going to be the one to lead us from out of under the Roman Empire and their bondage. And so the people have made up their minds. They're going to take Jesus by force if necessary and install him as their king in hopes that there will be a new exodus. That Israel will once again prevail over her enemies and be on top like they once were. And Jesus, knowing their intentions, knowing what was in their heart, hightails it out of there. Why did Jesus run? Wouldn't he have made a great king? We know he would. He would have been the best king. But it's very clear that this is not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to usher in. He says it himself later on in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would be fighting. But my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus didn't come to sit on a human throne. Edmund Clowney made a great statement about this one time. He said that Jesus did not come as a leader to bring the judgment. Jesus came as a savior to bear the judgment. Not to sit on a human throne, but to be nailed to a wooden cross. That's how he would conquer the ultimate enemy of sin and death. And so, y'all, we see again something that John has already shown us before, back in chapter 2, John tells us that people were believing in Jesus because they were witnessing his signs, which he was performing. But then he tells us that Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in them. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And here, y'all, we've got the same story. The people are enthralled with Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. They think of him as something he isn't. And they're trying to make him something he never came to be. And so Jesus doesn't play into their desires for him. Jesus does not entrust himself to their plans. He has his own plan, the Father's will, and so he withdraws, he runs. Now, y'all, what do you think the disciples are doing in this moment? I'm talking about the 12 disciples. They almost get lost in the story. They're featured prominently at the beginning, Philip and Andrew especially here. 
but most of it's about the big crowd and what the crowd intends to do. But we've got the 12. What? Jesus is at his most popular. Surely the 12 disciples are excited. Right? So we've got some movement here. Whatever's going to happen, it's going to be big. Everybody seems to love Jesus, and then he's gone. Then he sneaks away and disappears. What's going on? Well, there's actually a second miracle in this story. And it's designed specifically for the 12 disciples to witness, not so much for the crowd, okay? So let's, let's round the corner here today by looking at the end of this section in verse 16. This is also a very famous miracle. Now when evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, and it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up, because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. <clears throat> and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Uh, in the other gospel accounts, this, this story is told in such a way that Jesus had actually commanded the disciples to get in a boat and go, that he was going to meet them on the other side. They weren't abandoning Jesus. He had not abandoned them. Right? But he had gone to be alone and to pray. And yet it was a dark and stormy night. Have you noticed this? When the disciples are on the water, something bad's about to happen. I don't know why they ever got out on a boat to begin with. Um, it was a dark and stormy night. The disciples rode three or four miles. They're, they're too far in to go back. And then they are overcome by the wind, right? Then they see what they assume to be a ghost walking toward them on the water. And you and I would have made the same assumption. Again, in the other gospel accounts, that's what the assumption was. A ghost is coming. But then they realize it's Jesus. And when he speaks the word, they come to recognize that it's him. He says, it is I. I am, he says. Don't be afraid. And so they received him. Now, this is a miracle very different from the other one in so many ways, but there, there's something in here I find really awesome. Jesus had withdrawn from the crowd that wanted to use him for their own ends. The crowd that wanted to manipulate Jesus for themselves, he withdrew, but here he comes to the disciples in the midst of their trouble and fear and need. He comes to them, and he shows them in no uncertain terms who he really is. He's not merely a prophet. He's not strictly a miracle worker, and certainly not a military leader. This is God in the flesh. This is God in the flesh. Therefore, he's the one who has supreme power over nature itself to walk on water, to still the wind and the waves at his command. And he's the one able to save from despair. There is no fear outside or within that Jesus cannot conquer in his power and his grace. Y'all, when we read of these miracles, and there are more to come, let's be reminded that these are not magic tricks. These are not here to impress us. What Jesus is doing, these are divine works of grace that are meant to open our eyes to the person and the power and the purpose of Jesus Christ. 
when we read these, don't, don't merely be impressed. We're meant to be worshiping Him. We're not meant to say, well, what can He do for me? When we understand the greater thing that He has already done. And y'all, let's close like this. The feeding of the thousands, the walking on the water, in my mind, those are actually fairly small miracles compared to what Jesus has actually accomplished for those of us in this room. I mean, think about what Jesus has done, the greater miracle by far, that he could take helpless sinners like us and make us righteous before God. Jesus feeding the multitude, Jesus walking on water, that's amazing. That points to who he is. But far greater that we have a divine man who could take spiritually dead people and make us alive to God through his own death and resurrection. If you are a Christian, then you are a miracle, a walking miracle, in far greater measure than anything we saw today by the hand of Christ. When he spread his hands out to be nailed to the cross, he performed the miracle on our behalf, that now goes on forevermore. He didn't feed us for a single meal. He has given us the living bread and the living water upon which we now live forever. May we see Jesus today for who he really is. May we put all our trust and our hope in him, the one who gives us life by his gracious hand. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I I pray, I pray for my own heart, for our hearts, that, Lord, we would never look at Jesus Christ and belittle Him by thinking we can make Him do what we want Him to do. We'll make Him king, the people said, and force a rebellion and get back on top. Thank you, Father, that that you did not send your Son for such a naturalistic purpose, for such a merely human reason. And Father, protect our own hearts. Any, Any thought that's in me that I can use Jesus to get something else, something that I really want. But that we would look to Jesus Christ and all his awesome power, in his miraculous works, in his eternal grace, and that we would come to him on his terms, not ours. That we would trust him and have life in his name. That we would know him and become a child of our heavenly father, born again by your grace. Lord, thank you that the greater miracle is ours to share right where we sit. Saving grace. Lord, thank you that that Jesus Christ does not withdraw from those who come to faith in him. He comes close. And I pray that today for us, that we would experience the closeness the joyful presence of Jesus Christ 
the one who gave himself for us, that we might be united with him. Father, we'll celebrate that in baptism momentarily. But I pray also that if anyone hearing my voice right now is not united by faith to Jesus Christ, trusting him to be saved, Father, that you would perform that greatest miracle even right now. That we would know you and trust you and know your love for us. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.